Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to a guy named Richie Fontana. Now, Richie has had a really interesting career that's touched on a lot of different things that interest me and I have a feeling will interest a lot of you. So in the 70s, he starts out with the band Piper. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the band Piper, but that is where Billy Squire got his start. Billy Squire was the front man for Piper. And they put out a couple of albums in the mid to late 70s. This song right here is called Out of Control, and it's off their first album. Self-titled, by the way. So, Richie is the drummer in Piper. Billy eventually goes on to become Billy Squire, and Richie goes and does some other things. He's in a band with uh, Sean Delaney, who you may remember from Billa Coyne's story, his history. A band called the Scat Brothers, which have a really interesting story. We talk about it in here. And, uh, and then he goes on to work with Laura Branigan, of all people. And uh, all this time, also for years and years and years, his girlfriend has been Lydia Chris, Peter Chris from Kiss's ex-wife. So we talk about that too. And he put out a solo album a few years ago called Steady on the Steel. Now he's battling MS, but uh, he's doing great. And so I thought it would be really interesting to talk to him, especially because this hasn't come out yet, but it should soon if Eric Miller from Pods and Sods would ever get off his butt. He and I, I'm just kidding, Eric. He and I and BJ Cramp uh, are doing a series on Billy Squire, every album in order. And so we recently talked about Piper. And after we did that, I thought, I'm going to see if I can find somebody from the band to come on the show. And I thought Richie would be the perfect guy. So anyway, hope you enjoy this conversation. There's a lot of interesting tidbits, a lot of stuff in here about Kiss, about uh, Bill Coin, about Scat Brothers, about Billy Squire, Laura Brannigan, little bits, interesting bits of history, plus great music from Richie and his solo album as well. So anyway, check this out. He called me from his home in New York. Well, for starters, I mean, we got to start with Piper. I I believe you had had, you know, some kind of a local, probably, music career around New York City at the time. Tell me a little bit about you and how you got into music. Oh, well, okay. Well, I always loved music since I was a little kid, even playing my dad's records, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. I just was attracted to it. And uh, then when the Beatles came out, of course, from that age, my head exploded, of course, yeah. like a lot of kids. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, I had, a, I started, got, and my dad bought me a guitar cool. and uh, I just started learning how to play. And then I had a natural ability for drums. I mean, I wasn't that good yet, you know, but I was in a little band around the corner from where I live with a couple guys. It just, it's a gradual progression like it is for so many musicians. Yeah. And then, you know, you get a little better and you meet some other musicians who are good. And then you're in a different band in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just like one thing leads to another. And it's usually because of another musician. Right. And uh, I got to a point where my ability was good enough to play with other people who were even better than the ones I w- w- was playing with. So okay. I uh, was in, eventually I was in this band called Wormwood Scrubs. Mm. We named it after a prison in England. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and in that band was a guitar virtuoso, a guy named Jack O'Brien, who was just fantastic. Uh-huh. And uh, when he was 16 years old, he was like a child prodigy. You know, he was... He was jamming down at the cafe, I think it was the Cafe of Go-Go, and uh, Jimi Hendrix Ooh. was there, and he said, he put down his guitar, he said, let this kid play, and Jimi Hendrix picked up a bass. No they were way. Like, yeah, they were 
they were jamming in the afternoon. I mean, Jack really? was that. Yeah, yeah. Jack was that good. So now, let me ask a, you something. So when you were growing up, was the plan all along, I want to be a professional musician? I want to make a living that way? Or did you, was it more of a hobby and you set out to go to college to be an architect or something like that? Oh, no, no. I was driven. I wanted mm. to be a professional musician and nothing else. I, I had I put I had blinders on once yeah. the Beatles came out. Yeah, I just okay. you know, I mean everybody. There's a lot of kids in the neighborhood. Everybody was playing an instrument, this and that. But they all fell off and went off to have a life like you just described. You know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I just I just kept going forward. You know. That's amazing. Now, did yeah. Wormwood Scrubs? Did you guys ever record or put out a single or anything like that? No, we never. Not, nothing ever got issued. Uh, we did. Okay. We recorded a bunch of demos and things like that. And uh, but we never had management. We tried to pitch it on our own to Swan Song Records, um, with Led Zeppelin's company. Mm-hmm. You know, but we didn't get anywhere with that. But okay. the bass player in that band. This is how one thing leads to another. And it's usually mm-hmm. when you're a drummer, the bass player is usually the one that you know. Mm-hmm. You know. So the bass player in Wormwood Scrubs was Danny Sicardi, and he had previously worked with Billy Squire. Mm-hmm up in Boston some years before. I don't know what they mm. did. They had a band up there or something. Okay. And um, in 1975, Billy Squire got this small development deal with Bearsville Records. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the company Albert Grossman uh, yeah. owned. Right. Yeah, right. And they were based up in Woodstock, Bearsville, up there. Right. Up, upstate New York. Right. So uh, Billy called Danny, says, I, I'm going to cut these four tracks. He goes, you're working with a drummer, of course. Danny said, yes. So Billy drove down from Boston to uh, Bearsville, Woodstock, and Danny and I went up. We recorded these first songs of Billy's and mm-hmm. uh, played drums on them, of course, a little bit of Hammond organ, too. Yeah. And um, when I, once I met him, I, I just locked in. I said, this is the guy I want to work with, you know. Really? You thought that Hell about yeah. Billy right off the bat? I knew right away, this is the guy I want to work with because he was a song mm-hmm. man. Uh-huh. He was a really good guitarist, too. But his songs, I was, I've always been a song-oriented player, mm-hmm. you know? And um, it's like, when with Scrubs, my chops were, like, much more busy, you know? Yeah. Than they were later on. I honed it in more. I, I, did, I never had jazz chops. I always had rock and roll chops. So there's certain things, there were limitations to my playing, but whatever I couldn't do, I didn't need. Because mm. what I could do, I did very well. So I... I ended up playing in situations where I belonged, or I was asked to play in situations where I belonged. You know? Okay. So your yeah. buddy is friends with Billy. Billy gets a deal. Billy needs to kind of build a band around him to record demos for that deal, and you guys get the call, basically. Right. Okay. And we cut, right. And we cut those four tracks, and then uh, I said, I'll see you hopefully whenever. And he, okay. Billy went off and you know, was shopping himself and, and his, those four songs. And uh, he hooked up with Bill Coin, who's the yeah. manager of Kiss. Now, were those right. four songs on that first Piper album, or were they something different? No, they are. They are, okay. but they were re-recorded later. Sure, for the of course. Album. Okay, okay. Yes, yeah, so, uh, Bill really liked Bill. He wanted to sign him, so not him, but he said we have to put a band together. So then we got Alan Nolan and then Tommy Schiff. And uh, we rehearsed in uh, Manhattan in the rehearsal studio, and Bill came down and looked at it and said, this is it. This is great. So we signed with Bill O'Coin first. Okay. And um, we didn't even have a name yet, and he put us in a rehearsal studio, SIR Studios in Manhattan, and we just rehearsed every day, uh, five days a week, like a job, 
yeah. just becoming a band in a recording studio. And then Bill would bring in record executives to see, he would tell them, you know, we're, we're going to eavesdrop on their rehearsal. And then Bill, right. of course, when I walk in with Clive Davis, this one, that one, you know, let him have it. So do you know why he insisted? I assume he insisted anyway, that you guys be a band versus Billy being a solo act and you guys being, you know, supporting him like he would go on to do. I think because that's what Billy wanted. He wanted a oh, band. Billy wanted to be in a band. Okay. He wanted to be in a band and he had this concept of three guitars because we, we didn't go with a keyboard player. We went with another mm-hmm. guitar player instead. So in each of those guitar players, Billy, Tommy, and Alan each had a different expertise and they worked so well together. Mm-hmm. We needed slide guitar. It was Alan, you know, mm-hmm. great stuff. We needed mm-hmm. like, you know, rip roaring. It was Tommy and mm-hmm. Billy was a, really good guitarist too and that's what he wanted so that's what we we did okay so we're yep. rehearsing one day without a name and uh billy walks out of the studio for a minute he comes over to me he goes this is a good name and he has a cork in his fingers and he, uh-huh. and it says piper i went that's a good name huh. and uh everybody okay. agreed we called bill and we said that's it piper yeah now let me let me go back one more step do you do you know what uh, Bill saw originally in Billy that wanted him to sign him and bring him on board? Oh, the songwriting and the voice. Really? Okay. Yeah. And the looks. Yeah. You know, that yeah. was really important in those days. It's not anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, the way, you know, the bands are today, but this is in the mid, mid seventies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the band okay. was all, everybody in the band was, you know, we were all pretty good looking guys and uh, sure. we all played great and the songs were great. He goes, Bill Coyne needed to be excited yeah. in order to get behind something, you know? Got it. Okay. And what and, was, and, now, did you, I assume you went to his office, like what, paint a picture of what even his, his office would have felt like. Was there a, was there a secretary is what's on the walls? The, what, you know what I mean? Like kind of give us some details on what that experience was like. Ah, oh, that's a good, good question. The office was fantastic. There was a, a very large staff. Really? Yeah, you know, it was 645 Madison Avenue in the Pan Ocean Building, it was called at the time. Uh, he had all different departments. He had a uh, design department. Uh, the, the press office was within his office. It was the, uh, the publicity people. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was an accounting department. Okay. I mean, there was a lot of people up there, and it Got was it. exciting. And mm-hmm. You know, there was always music playing. There was a conference room with a piano, gold records on the wall already. Because sure. Kiss had already started to become successful. Right. It was just a great place to be. I mean, even before the first album came out, they treated you like a star. They said, we want to make you a star. We're going to treat you like one and just be one. Just, yeah. just be it. You know? now, let me, it was, uh, yeah. Let me, let me ask you this. And you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but are there just piles of cocaine everywhere? When no. you go into his office, is it like, hey, guys, have a, have a bump? Let's no. party. No, it wasn't like that. <laughs> no, not not yet. Later okay, on. <laughs> it would it would become that later. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it didn't start off that way. I mean, okay. that that happened much later. But Piper was already disbanded. Okay. My story is a little bit longer than some of the other guys in the band because after Piper broke up, I didn't go away. I, yeah. Because I played on Paul Stanley's album, sure. John Delaney 
later formed this group, Scat Brothers, with Casablanca. That was Bill LaCoin uh-huh. management. And then when Billy Idol came along, I was hanging around with those guys. So yeah. more in, in the 80s, things got a little crazy. Sure. Like that. Yeah. Well, we're going to get on. We're going to touch on all of that. Believe me, I got it all written down here. So, OK, okay so th- so Piper comes together and Billy comes up with the name. You guys are feeling a lot of chemistry. Um, he's writing songs for that first album. Now, does it feel at all like a democracy or do you feel like hired hands there to make Billy to sort of... Um, crystallize Billy, Billy's vision. Do you know what I mean? No, I understand. It did feel like a democracy. It did. Because oh, we didn't even question the fact that nobody else was doing any writing. Mm. You know, it was just, it just felt like a solid unit. It did. It okay. wasn't until the, when we disbanded, when it just like, it snapped into that mode. It was mm. just, it was, it felt like a dem- democracy right up to the end of the group. It just did. Okay. okay. Yeah, because we loved the songs. We said, you know, it was the first album. And yeah. then here comes the second album. Billy comes in with a, a whole bunch of new tunes. Right. And because what, what happened was we helped arrange those songs. You know, mm-hmm. Billy didn't tell us what to play. I mean, it was a democracy where we, like, got together and the chemistry was right and things fell into place quickly because in that way it was a democracy, you know, the, uh, the arrangement of the, yeah. of, the, of the instrumentation. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Okay. So what – now, I'm – I was too young. Okay. I'm 44 now. So I, I'm coming at Piper after the fact, having, you know, become a Billy Squire fan and going back through his old stuff. I don't even know. What was Who's Your Boyfriend, the big single off that first album? Yeah, that was the first single, okay. and it got a lot of airplay, especially in key places. Like, I mean, I'll just start, not just because New York City is my hometown, but this is a major market. And yeah. WNEW FM at the time was the radio station, and they went on that song. I was driving around in a car after the, it was released, and I heard Any Time at All by the Beatles. Dennis Elsis was one of the jocks on WNEW. He was mm-hmm. like famous. DJ in New York. He played Anytime at All by the Beatles, Who's Your Boyfriend by Piper, and then another Beatles song. Really? I, I said, what is happening? So <laughs> one of the people at a coin called the radio station, and, and Dennis Elsa says, can't you hear it? It's perfect. They go together. Mm. <laughs> God, this is like <laughs> surreal. I'm driving in my car, you yeah. know, I'm listening to my idols, the Beatles, and then I hear our song. It was like yeah. crazy. Crazy. Well, oh we got a gosh. lot of airplay around the country and in Japan. Good. Okay. Yeah. You know, tell me what that's like for you to go from a struggle. Now, when you were, you know, with Wormwood Scrubs, I assume, I don't know, maybe you were 
so busy that you could make a living as a musician in Wormwood Scrubs? Or did you have to, you know, work an office job during the day and then do that at night? What's it like when your life suddenly gets into gear and you are now a professional musician and you can pay your bills doing nothing but that? It's very interesting because when, you, when I got behind my drum kit before I, all this stuff happened, I was just honing my craft and hoping and wishing and, you know, something mm-hmm. would happen. And uh, I just, in the back of my mind, and my heart, somehow I knew something would happen, but I didn't know how, you know. And it was scary, you know. Yeah. And then to go from that to all of a sudden I'm sitting behind my drum kit again, only the floodlights hit me, and I'm at Madison Square Garden yeah. playing for 20,000 people. Right. It's like, it didn't, it just, what happens is, it was a feeling of insecurity at first because all of a sudden, really? well, it, to some degree, because yeah. we were, there was insecurity because all of a sudden you're signing contracts. There's mm. an office staff. Thousands of dollars are being pumped into the band by the record company. There's, there's Doug Morris. There's mm-hmm. Herb Albert. There's, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's like all this stuff, and you're going on tour, and it's what you want. I mean, we yeah. just rolled with it. We felt like, hey, this is where we belong. This is where I belong. This is what I, this is what I want. And this is what I'm doing. But alongside of that, there was a buried emotion of insecurity. Sure. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, I don't, I've done almost 200 of these and I don't know that anyone has ever quite expressed it that way. And yet that makes so much sense. It's like when your dreams start coming true, then what, you know, I can't mess Mm -hmm. this up. I can't, uh, People are relying on me. I'm getting everything I want. Do I deserve it? Am I measuring up? All those questions start kind of, you know, coming into your mind where they weren't there before. That's exactly. really fascinating. Okay. It's surreal. It really Yeah. Is. Now, did you immediately go out I've, opening for Kiss? Weren't you opening for them on like the um, Love Gun tour, I believe? Yeah, Love Gun. Yeah, and that, that wasn't the first thing. The first thing we did, well, they put us out in Chicago and just played a bunch of small clubs just to get our act together. Mm-hmm. But then the first major tour, we went on the road with Angel. We did a whole tour with Angel. Okay. And uh, then we did the, we recorded the second album at Electric Lady Studios in New York. And at, this is a little 
fun little story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Electric Lady uh, Studios in New York at that time had two rooms, A and B. Mm-hmm. So we started cutting our basic tracks in Studio B. Kiss were recording Love Gun in Studio A. No way. <laughs> so we had the whole studio was a coin. It was a whole family affair. They were walking into our sessions. We were walking into theirs. And uh, it was just one big... That is great. It was pretty great, yeah. Wow. And we recorded that second album... And then we went on the road with the babies. Oh, sure. Really? I can yeah. see that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Every time I think of you, it always turns out good. Every time I've held you, I thought you understood. People say a love like ours will surely pass But I know a love like ours will last and last But baby I was wrong not knowing how our love should go But I wasn't wrong not knowing how our love would grow Yeah, we went on the road with the babies, okay. and we did a whole tour with them. We did, we did a lot of other one-off gigs. It was Easy Top. Uh, we opened for Electric Light Orchestra at the Boston Garden. Wow. We did a whole bunch of one-off gigs, but mainly a tour with the babies. When we got to the end of that tour, we thought we were done for that year. <clears throat> and they said, no, no, you're going on the Kiss tour. So mm. we opened at Madison Square Garden. two nights. They, they played three nights in December of 77. Uh, the band Detective yeah. opened first night. Sure, Detective Michael DeBar. Everybody wants to be recognized. Doesn't matter what you've done. Some people find it on a big silver screen. Some find it behind a shotgun A small young girl Downtown South She saw a starlet In a movie house She left her mama To stake a big clay Poor little girl Never gonna Tony K, yeah, was in yes, yeah. Uh, but we opened, we did the second two nights. Now this was this was the pinnacle. Is that the right word? 
we got an encore at Madison Square Garden. Now, when you're from New York City, <laughs> and you know the thing you asked about before, the surrealism of you yeah. know, going from Wormwood Scrubs to that, yeah. we got an encore at Madison Square Garden. Now, we weren't like, you know, ooh, ooh, ooh. We were like, uh-huh. we belong here. You know, yeah, and yeah. when you're in the middle of it, it's much different. Now, later in life, in retrospect, it's like it's wonderful memories. Sure. But you know, walking off stage and 20,000 people call you back. So we got an encore at the Garden. Then we did about eight more cities with them. Nice. We did the Spectrum in Philly. That was one of the craziest gigs That's ever. That's great. What's, uh, what was the single off the Can't Wait album? The title song, Can't was Wait. Was it Can't Wait? Okay. Such a good song. Off the first album, after Who's Your Boyfriend, were there subsequent singles that kept coming out that was kind of keeping things, keeping the album on the charts or anything? Actually, no, no. Oh, so just the one, huh? Yeah, just the one, because things seemed to move very fast, you know? Mm, Okay. There almost wasn't going to be time. No one ever asked that question before, but a lot went on in in the one year in 1977 i mean 76 bled into 77 and we broke up the beginning of 78 so Hmm. no who's your boyfriend and then the second album can't wait and that's that that's it okay okay boy there's so much good stuff on those albums it's a shame they didn't get more traction out there you know do you have a favorite is there a particular song on either of those albums that you personally have like a no one likes to answer the favorite question but is there a moment where you're like oh i really nailed a drum fill or i contributed a chorus or something like that to one of those songs yeah you know, i can't pick like you said it's hard really i can't pick one can't wait the title track drop by and stay is a good one yeah there you go
the first album's got stuff too. You know, eh, okay. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> it's just curious. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, while you're out now, let, let's talk a, again a little bit about Bill Coin. Did you feel like he was giving you guys the kind of attention that you deserved? Because I, if I remember correctly, that's part of the Stars story. Remember that band Stars? You probably knew oh, yeah. them too. Um, that they were had the potential to be just as big and good as Kiss, but because Kiss was this monolith that he had to deal with, other acts on his roster were getting sort of short shrift. Did you ever notice that or feel that way? We didn't feel that way because we oh, were di- so different than Kiss and Stars, but, uh, but it was always a concern. Hmm. It was definitely a concern that it, we were getting attention. So we were trying to monitor him and the record company in fact, when the band split up, right before the band split up, we got off of A&M Records. Oh. And a funny thing happened at the very end. It was at our, our request. And Bill's, mm. you know, we, we talked with Bill about it because we didn't feel like we were getting the push from them. Mm. So Bill was in our corner, and, um, but a, a lot of stuff happened right at the same time. One of the guys in the band left, Alan. Okay. He wanted to pursue the, the punk scene was happening, and that he, that was, he was attracted to that. So right when that happened, we were talking about signing possibly with RCA Records, hmm. replacing Alan in the band, and going to England and recording a third album in, at the, uh, this place called The Manor in Oxford, England. Okay, I've heard of And it. all that stuff was floating. What, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And then Bill pushed Billy. I mean, that's what Bill Coyne told me years hmm. later. Because hmm. I think it's time, you got, it's time to go out solo. Wow. So we had a meeting up at the office. We disbanded. I left that day, got on the train, went out to where I live in Great Neck, New York, got home. The phone rang. It was Billy. He said, I want you to continue working with me because it's, it's been good. So I said, yeah. great. So for that following year, 78, 78 was interesting for me because I worked with Billy just recording. Uh-huh. It was Billy and I and uh, two guys uh, from this other band called The Werewolves. Okay. Texas, and we recorded a bunch of demos of Billy's new songs. In the middle of doing that, I was in another group with Tommy from Piper for a while. Mm-hmm. And then also, I played on Paul Stanley's 1978 yeah. solo album. Okay, so let's talk about that. Now, obviously, if Paul's asking you to come play on his album, then I'm guessing you guys have become friendly with the Kiss guys through touring with them and being signed to a coin and all that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We were around them a lot for you know, all those years there. Yeah. And um, especially when we recorded together at Electric Lady, seeing them at the office, them requesting that we open for them on the road, mm-hmm. and then hanging out with them at New, on New Year's Eve. We, we played with them in New Year's Eve. I think it was Greensville, North Carolina. And you know, I was hanging out with Paul, and he says, you know, the fans were trying to come up the stairwells. There was security. It was crazy. There was food fights. Everybody, the road crews, everybody was going nuts. Yeah. And uh, I was just sitting there with Paul, and he said, isn't this something we're held up in this hotel? We couldn't even leave if we wanted to. <sighs> I said, well, as long as I'm sitting here with you, I can't. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no <laughs> one will know was, me. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun. And, yes, sure. I, I knew them, you know, Gene uh-huh. Paul. Yeah. So it was okay. like, you know, he knew me, he knew I can sing, you know, I didn't sing on it, but, uh, great. Was, so he uh, brings you in then to play, I think it's the first four songs on his solo album from 78, correct? That's correct. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. 
Now, one other, um, uh, somebody else I've had on this podcast is Pepe Castro. Do you know Pepe? I've met him a couple of times, yeah. Oh, have you? Okay. He sang on that album, and he um, he was such a good guy. I wondered if you had crossed paths or had any stories of Pepe Castro. So. The thing about Pepe to me is funny. I mean, there was an event in 2010 over in New Jersey. It was a big convention. It was called Weekend of 100 Rockstars or something. Mm. And there was, like, everybody had, a, like, a booth or a table. The guys from Paul Revere and the Raiders, um, a little Anthony, uh, little Anthony Imperials. I mean, but major stars all over the place. Mm-hmm. And Pepe had a, a spot there. And Lydia, my girlfriend, Lydia Chris, mm-hmm. was one of the invited guests. So we okay. walked over to Pepe. I said, hey, Pepe, how you doing? He goes, he goes I know you. I said, well, we, we're on Paul Stanley's album together. He goes, yeah, but no, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe we met. I don't know. Huh. But um Okay. Interesting. Now, look, you um, you brought it up. I was going to bring it up later. So your your girlfriend for a long time now, I believe, has been Lydia Chris, right? That's correct. Tell me about. I mean, I can imagine how you guys met, but tell me the story. Well, again, all those years. <laughs> yeah. Kiss, Piper, Scat Brothers, all that stuff. Sure. She knew who I was. I knew who she was, but we didn't really know each other. And I was in Australia with the Scat Brothers in '81. I came back to New York. Was, there was an event at Studio 54 where uh, Kiss was doing a live satellite thing. They had a song called I. Mm-hmm. And sure. we're doing a live satellite thing to Italy or something. I and, remember and, that, yeah. Yeah, and all the coin people showed up at Studio 54, so I was there, of course. And uh, Lydia, like, you know, gave me this look, a little kiss, and, I'm, and I said, yeah, when she was leaving. <laughs> and I, and I said, but you see, I didn't know that she was divorced from Peter, and no uh, one told me. I went, I don't know what that's about, right? So, <laughs> this is 1982. Okay. We really have to fast forward now. <laughs> 2001. Uh, Sean Delaney, who's a big part of mine. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about him in a minute, too. And we can backtrack to that. But okay. 2001, Sean was in New York, and he was staying at Libby's apartment, and he called me up. He said, why don't you come over? New Year's Eve. So, in 2001 going into 2002. So I did, and the rest is history. Oh, man. Wow. Crazy, that right? Is, that is very crazy. Do you ever interact much with Peter? No. Did it affect uh, a, I don't know if you guys were good friends, and this is like an Eric Clapton and George Harrison situation, or if he, you know, <laughs> if he didn't care. No, no, it wasn't that way. Okay. No, it wasn't like that, but... Uh, now, because all those early earlier days I was talking about with Kiss, I spoke mostly with Gene Simmons okay. and Paul. I really didn't interact with Ace in those days. Not for more recent years. I've seen Ace a bunch of times, like yeah. in these recent 10 years, whatever. But I never spoke, hardly spoke with Peter at all back in those days. Okay. It wasn't until 2010, when Bill passed away, we had a, two different memorial gatherings for him. And one was down in Florida at this uh, restaurant, outdoor restaurant that he used to like to go to, and everybody came. Mm. And Peter was there. And we sat together, and we talked, and it was really nice. Yeah, that's fun. That's some fun juice right there. I love that. So uh, I want to go back to one for one minute to the end of Piper, because, you know, we've just established how exciting it is to, you know, join a band that's going on tour and make a living as a, 
as a professional musician, when the band comes to an end, how are you feeling? Are you sort of, is there some desperation or depression? Or are you just like, hey, I'm in the game. I'll go find something else. No big deal. A little bit of both. I okay. Was, at, first, at first, I was like a deer in the headlights. But then I immediately felt a pullback from Billy and Bill O'Coyne and Sean Delaney and somebody else up at the, rec, at the management, Rick Alberti. Okay. I kind of felt like they weren't letting me go. So I was, it was basically limbo. But uh, oh, I was pretty bummed out at first. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But I, I knew. Uh, okay, something. I'm not going to go back to the minor leagues. It's like baseball. Yeah. You know, minor leagues, major leagues. I said, I, right. I, I don't want to go back to the minor leagues. You know, I'm not going to do that. So, mm-hmm. and just Sean Delaney. Okay, I guess it's time for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> now, yeah. let me tell you, I'd never heard of the Scat Brothers before, but I've been looking them up to get ready to talk to you. And I watched a video for um, The Outpost. What's the name oh, of that boy. song? basically like a big gay cowboy video is what it kind of kind of seems like and i don't mean that it's disrespectful but i right is that what you i i don't know enough about the scat brothers but i know a thing or two about sean delaney is that kind of what it was are you sort of like the cowboy village people or something oh my god no oh okay <laughs> that video i'm glad you brought it up because i've been like trying to crush that story for for years Oh, okay. What happened was, no, we were, we were a band. We played instruments, just like all the other stuff I've been talking about, like okay. Piper, like Kiss, like everything. Yeah. This is what happened. That song became a hit in Australia. Uh-huh. It was climbing up the charts, and it had a little bit of that kind of macho stuff sound to it, because uh, Sean's idea at first was to like cash in on the dance scene around 1979, sure. and uh, we had nothing to do with that video. Okay, so let uh-huh. me preface it by saying that. So the song became, started to become a hit in Australia. And the record company in Australia, which was Mercury Polygram, said to a coin, we need a video. And they, mm-hmm. we said, we don't have a video. Mm-hmm. So they made their own. Oh. Those guys are actors. It's not us. Uh-huh. <laughs> Shirtless, muscle cowboy guys. <laughs> right. It's nowhere near what we were. People, right. if, if anyone was expecting that and they came to see us, it's like, that's not what they were going to get. Okay. Okay. We had double drumming at first. It was like a fortress of drums. Drums, bass, guitar, keyboards, you know, like, like any other band. And um, we were all 
uh, we weren't too happy about that. Okay. That mis- total misrepresentation. Okay. Because, because I... Of, it was because of the sound. And the record company uh, down in Australia took the liberty of going with that image. And it was like crazy. Hmm. See, I'm, I wondered because I, I believe I've heard Sean Delaney was Bill Coin's boyfriend, or maybe that was on the down low. I'm not exactly sure. But so I'm wondering if that's what he's doing is he's putting together this sort of rock disco group to, you know, play the the gay clubs or the YMCA's or the, you know, Studio 54's or really go out there in a glam kind of over the top way and how you felt about that but it sounds like that's not how it was you guys were more of a straightforward rock band and this one video is not an indication of what you guys were all about 100 percent correct everything you just said it was an ass kicking band it was like uh you know okay yeah yeah yeah. okay so you've got to say we played the stalwood in la we we got it you know we played gay gigs too you know we played everywhere Sure. But when we okay. got to Australia, it was a full-blown Major League Tour. Men at Work were our opening act. That's right, yeah. I mean, you could look for another video. It's on there now. It's a song called Oh Those Girls, and it was from our second album. Shows a lot more of what we were like. Plus, two of the guys left. We didn't have double drumming after a while, so okay. I just played drums. And uh, we replaced the guitar player with this other guy who was like, you know, coming out like Jimmy Page with violin yeah. bows. It was like, Killer. look up, oh, those Scat Brothers. I think it's on YouTube. It says someone put it up as Sean Delaney Scat Brothers. Oh, those okay. girls. And we'll it's play it. on one of the biggest shows in Australia called Countdown. Awesome. And, uh, You'll see what it more okay. What it was Countdown. Like. That's Molly Meldrum, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Molly Ian Meldrum and yep. uh, Ian Molly Meldrum, and okay. he interview, he interviewed me first in New York by myself. Oh, really? They aired down there before we got down there, and then we did Countdown. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's a big deal. Now you've got to feel like I mean I don't know. Uh, frankly, I guess because I haven't heard too much of the Scat Brothers since, maybe they didn't make the you know, kind of impact that you had hoped, but you were a, again, a part of a band that was touring professional, putting out albums. You, you mentioned about graduating to the major leagues. You probably felt like I'm still in the game. I'm still playing in the majors. I'm still doing okay. But when the scat brothers come to an end, then what do you do? I think that's when, about when Laura Branigan comes into play, right? Right. Right. Well, the scat brothers, after the Aussie tour, uh, I should backtrack a little bit. From that first album, I co-wrote a song that was a dance hit all over the world. It's called Walk the Night.
African man and angry eyes won't look from him can paralyze, resist at any time or place. Creepily a slap right across your face. Again, it was nothing like the image of the band it became later on, but it was like this dance, sleazy dance, dark song, and it became a hit, a dance, a club hit all over the world, which I got into Grand Theft Auto video game back in 2008. Hmm. But, um, okay, so the question you just said, after Scat Brothers breaks up, okay, we come back from Australia, I'm still living in L.A., I'm writing songs with one of the guys from the Scat Brothers, Richard Martin Ross was one of the greatest singers I ever worked with. Mm. And uh, uh, we started writing a bunch of songs together, thinking, because I didn't say before, Scappers, we were assigned to Casablanca Records here as well. Right, right. So that was a really easy connection in the beginning. But anyway, uh, Richard and I were writing songs in L.A. And uh, Christmas time, 1981, I said, I'm going back to New York. I'll be back to L.A. afterwards. I got back here to, to New York, and I just felt like I'm not going back to L.A. Hmm. I want to stay here and start fresh. So, first thing I did is, uh, Billy Squire's ex-girlfriend, her name was Maxanne Sotori, she was an A&R person up at Electra Records, and she was a good friend. So, I went to see Max. I said, I'm here. I'm in New York. I want to do something. Let me know if you hear something. She sent me down to the studio. Uh, it was called The Ranch where I met mm -hmm. this great singer-songwriter from Texas. I'm not going to go on too long about that, but okay. really talented guy, and I helped put two really excellent bands together. Mm. I tried to get... Bill Coin was uh, interested. didn't work out between him and this artist, Andy. And so I brought in someone else who used to work for Coin, was now working with David Sonnenberg, who was handling Southside Johnny. Oh, wow. Yeah, and... Uh, and one thing led to another again, and he introduced me to a world-class bass player who became a very good friend of mine, is Steve York. Hmm. He was from England. He worked with everybody, Pete Townsend, Marianne Faithful, and he knew a lot of different people. So the musical uh, director, no, the keyboard player who worked with Donna Summer, Virgil Weber, was a friend of this bass player, Steve York. And Virgil Weber got the gig to become the musical director for Laura Brannigan, and he had to put a band together. Hmm. So he called Steve. Steve pulled me in with that, and that's how I got into the whole Brannigan team. Okay. And this is around the time of Gloria, right? Gloria was huge right about then, 1980, yeah. the end of 82. Okay. Yeah. Are you, do you play on Gloria, or are you just her touring band? I was just, I was just a touring band, except for... The uh, video we put out, it was an uh, hour-long, it was a commercial release That's on RCA right. Home Videos, uh, the Lake Tahoe show. Okay. 
that was the only recorded stuff I did. Well, also, we did live Westwood One uh, radio broadcast. I have some of that on my uh, Facebook page. Very cool. Okay. I'll look yeah, yeah none, none of the studio stuff, no. Okay. Okay, got it. So that's keeping you vibrant and employed again for another few years. Um, I don't know if, how you feel if that's um, your style. I, mean, I don't know if it even matters. I guess if you're just wanting to make a living as a professional musician, you're not caught up in what style of playing you're doing as long as you're employed? Or is there sort of any kind of con conflict of conscience going on? Oh, no, none of that. I was, oh, I was very enthusiastic about her thing. Good. Because it was, uh, I was able to, I said, uh, those musicians were like heavy hitters in that band. Mm -hmm. You know, really good guys. And I mean, we started rehearsals, they, put out, they brought out charts. I said, it wasn't like let's take it from the second verse. It was like take it from bar fifty-two. Let's say, oh, okay. <laughs> it was yeah. like I mean, it was at a, a different level, and but I loved it, and yeah. and it's I just I managed to do something that's kind of unique. Well, because usually when you see an artist like that or singer, the band behind them, behind Barry Manilow's band, uh, behind you know behind sure. Celine Dion, you don't care who's back there. Right, right. You know, they're, they're great guys, great musicians, but they don't have faces. I made sure I made myself known. <laughs> because I was able to, with my personality, into those, the, the performances of Laura's songs without overstepping the boundaries that needed to be, you know, mm -hmm. done. And uh, I really enjoyed all of it, working good. with her. Well, good. Okay, so then what happens after Laura Branigan? After that, okay, now this gets interesting. I started really feeling my oats as a songwriter, and uh, I wanted to go solo. You know, I, kind of, I really wasn't ready, but I started honing my craft as a writer because I play guitar, bass, keyboards, all that, you know. But the other side of this is I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Okay. Right. That's um, happening around this time. Ones. We can Got talk it. about that. You know, I'm still on my feet. But um, I had, but back then it didn't show. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't using a cane or anything like that. So, and it, it didn't it didn't matter too much. I really didn't want to be in a band as a drummer again because I just started feeling the pull mm. of like trying to go solo. So I started writing these songs and cutting these little demos. And uh, Bill Coin was based out in L.A. Now we're like late '80s, and I sent him a little demo. And uh, of one of these songs I wrote, you know, and he goes, oh, my God, I didn't know you can do this. I, mm. the, the, I love the song, the voice. He says, when I come to New York, you know, we have to talk. I said, OK. I hadn't seen him in a long time. Mm -hmm. So uh, he says, I said, I'll pick you up at the airport. So he goes, oh, great. OK. He goes, well, I recognize you. You're still gorgeous. I said, yeah. <laughs> I, I said, just look for a heavy set guy with a receding hairline. He goes, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, that's not what he wants to hear <laughs> I know, right so you know I was a little older now you know so uh -huh. I had my personality I wasn't going to hold anything back anymore sure, you know sure just having fun he was he, he was he was fun he had a great cool. sense of, great sense of humor okay so I started you know he got me a spec deal at the studio in White Plains New York and I started cutting some serious tracks it was myself playing all the instruments hmm. got a little bit uh help with some some of the keyboard stuff a couple of guys but i did most of it myself and uh he was shopping me a record deal and about 1990 
I don't know, 92, something, 93. His uh, business relationship that he had going, they had myself, a band called Broken Arrow, and another solo artist that they were shopping, Bill Coyne and his partner. Well, the business relationship fell apart with his partner, and just right at that time, I started to limp a little bit. Uh, and I started yeah. to be a little self-conscious and worrisome. But again, if this happens, can I keep up my end of the bargain? Because I was harboring the secret that I had MS. Yeah. And I, I was afraid. And once that happened, it was almost a relief. I was able to start talking about it, and I said, you know what? I'm a songwriter. I'm just going to write songs and pitch it to other artists, film, TV, etc. Cool. And that's still kind of what I try to do today. Okay. Okay. So you, um, so that's how, I mean, have you ever had to do anything outside of music to pay the bills or make a living? I had to, yeah, I had to do different kinds of things for a while. You know. Really? Like what? I'm curious. I had, a, uh, my family had, a, uh, they were successful with a, a book publishing company. So oh, I went out and worked okay. for them for a while. So okay. just to fill the gap. When I was cutting those tracks, um, the one what I was just talking about, the, yeah. the spectacle that Bill got me, there was there wasn't any money coming in, so I did have to do something. So sure. luckily I had a, you know a place I can go to just fill that Good. gap for a while. That's incredible. See, that's why I ask because I think I think knowing that adds a dimension to the artists that I bring on here that not everyone sees or knows about. That you're regular people sometimes, you know, you're like the well, rest of still, us. Well, it's really it's really crazy to go. Well, you, when you said about the ups and downs, the yeah. ups and downs. I mean, it's a shock. Yeah, it's a shock to be like I was working with Laura. I mean, I, that doing that and going solo, that crossover was very unique. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like oh, I'm not doing the Tonight Show anymore with Laura Branigan. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not doing that. It wasn't like a letdown because I I picked a new road to go mm. for myself. Right. You know, okay. and I was going. The plan was to you know get a record deal for myself, front my own band and all that, but didn't get that far. Now, you did ultimately put out a solo album in the early 2000s, I think, right? Steady on yeah, the Steel? Yeah, yeah. Filed a lot of that material I was just talking about, mm -hmm. and with some other demos. And a friend of mine, John McNeil Johnston, helped me package this together. I just compiled it and put it out. Yeah. Okay. And how can people get their hands on it? Is it on iTunes? I listen to it on YouTube, um, but people can buy it off your website. Yeah, the album is called "Steady on the Steel." 
Okay. And it's a CD, and uh, or, or iTunes has it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the website is richiefontana.com. Great. Okay. So what have you been doing the last, you know, I don't know, 15 years or so? Are you uh, still involved in music? Do you play out at all? Do you uh, do other jobs? How do you bide your time today? No, I don't, I don't play out anymore. I just try to write. I just okay. write and pitch and hang out with Lydia. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> that works. Well, yeah, good. Yeah. Do you guys have any kids or anything like that? Oh, no, no. Okay. I didn't think Thank so. God. No, we no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, good. Uh, well, let me let me throw out some names to you then and uh, see if they spark any interesting stories. If they don't, we'll just cut them out, okay? But okay. I want to, um, you know, we've talked a lot about Bill Coin. Have you? Is there any? Is there a particular story relating to Bill that sticks out in your mind? Something funny he said or did, or something bad? I don't know. Whatever it might be. Oh gosh. Because he's such a character, you know? Uh, yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, God, I don't know. He just instilled so much crazy stuff in us. Like, it was always food fights. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, he used to start that stuff. Uh, and then the other bands picked up on it. And we used to have our own food fights because of him. Because it was it. like, oh, I guess this is what you do. You know, like... Uh, yeah. I mean, you want to ask about him, but it, it steers me to another Piper story where Piper and the babies, we were at a, a Mexican restaurant in Houston, Texas. And uh, it was Piper, the babies, the, both road crews, everybody. It was like a uh -huh. large group of people. We were all in the room together. And at the end of the dinner, we had to get it started. So Billy Squire throws a drink into our tour, in our tour manager's face. Right. It was like, it's time. Uh. Here we go. And <laughs> stuff started flying all over the place. Eventually, the police came in and escorted us out. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, even the babies got involved, you know. But, uh, I mean, yeah. Bill, you know, he was just a party guy, you know. Okay, was, cool. Yeah. Do you keep in touch with Billy Squire at all? Yeah, yeah, we're in touch. Okay. okay. A little bit here and there. Uh, a little bit here you, and there, exactly. Okay. Do you have a prominent obvious Billy Squire story? Uh, no, he just, he was just okay. a great band bandmate. And, um, okay. No, yeah, we're just, and we were together so much, but we we're all doing pretty much the same sure. thing at the same time. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, another Billy, Billy Idol. I mean, he was in the bill of coin world as well. You mentioned him earlier. Did you ever play with him or hang out with him or party with him or anything like that? A little of both. Um, we used to hang out cause Bill, would bring us out to these clubs. So I would be with Billy and um, Steve Stevens. I was mm -hmm. around those guys just hanging out a lot. And then uh, one day the office called and they needed to, they were auditioning bass players and Tommy Price was their drummer, mm -hmm. uh, was Billy's drummer. And uh, I guess Tommy wasn't around that day. They asked me if I can go down and play. So I went, to, I went down and uh, helped Billy and Steve Stevens audition bass players. I just filled in for their drummer. Mm. So we did dancing with myself, you know, about fifteen times with yeah. fifteen different fifteen different guys walking in. Sure. Okay. Oh, I knew fine. I knew them for a little while. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and then you got to tell me something about either Paul or Gene. Um, you know, you got to play on Paul's album. Any specific or interesting stories that stand out from either of those guys? Uh, not really. You know. Okay. I just hung out with Paul a lot when he was doing overdubs. I mean, the fans always ask me those kind of questions, like, did you do anything else? Well, with Paul, 
uh, after we cut those tracks, uh, the basic tracks was Paul, myself, Bob Kulik, who was with mm-hmm. Meatloaf, mm-hmm. and Steve Buslow, the bass player, he was also with Meatloaf's band at the time. Mm-hmm. So after we cut those four, uh, Paul called me again sometime later because he was producing a demo, I guess, for the Alessi brothers, Billy and Bobby sure. Alessi. Yeah. Yeah. And so Paul wanted the same guys who played on his album to come down and play. So again, we were at Electric Lady hmm. Studios and we were cutting tracks, uh, a couple of songs, one or two songs for Billy and Bobby Alessi. So we had a little studio, you know, we were like Paul Stanley's session band there for a while. Yeah. Although Bob Kulik and Paul go way back. One thing that bridges over is the second show I ever did with Laura Branigan was one of the most interesting shows mm. ever. It was at the Capitol Center in Washington, D.C. It was like the Madison Square Garden of Washington, D.C. at the time. 20,000 seat or whatever it was. Cool. And it was an interesting bill because it was a, a billing because it was a, um, a benefit for this thing called Wolf Trap. It was an arena or something mm. that had burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. And it was a benefit for that. So on the bill that night was Bob Hope, Elizabeth Taylor, Sammy Davis Jr., Meatloaf, Laura Branigan, Paul Williams, all these interesting people. Oh, I, met, I got to meet Bob Hope that night. I, I was walking in the hallway before the show, and he, he was so cool. He came into our dressing room to use our bathroom. He goes, and some of the guys in the band got a photograph with him. Uh-huh. And, but I was out walking around backstage looking at stuff and so i missed the photograph so i but i saw him in the hallway i was alone in the hallway with bob hope he's walking away wow i said bob i said my name's richie fontana i play drums with laura Branigan. we're on the bill tonight so he stopped and turned extended his hand shook my hand said nice to meet you richie oh and went, and went, that to me was like so cool yeah because yeah. <laughs> wow. i got in a little little kid you know watching sure. tv my parents and there was bob hope and there he is i'm shaking his hand alone in the hallway wow. but so that night we're in the dressing room and meatloaf says to me he goes richie fontana didn't you play with buslo and paul stanley so it was a whole it all came full circle there for a little bit that yeah night. that's crazy wow yeah. good for you being in the Fun. center of all those people that must feel good um now laura you had mentioned i believe that you had played with her when she was playing on The Tonight Show. Did you have any interactions with Johnny Carson? Just passed him in a hallway, just passed. like I did with okay. Bob Hope, like you said. But we just made eye contact. I did not say anything to him. I was walking one way. He was coming towards me. I glanced at him. He glanced at me. Just like a, a, yeah. a the, the slightest nod that you can give. You Got know? it. Okay. Like, you know, I know you know who I am. And, right. You know, <laughs> I should have I I started talking with him. Well, I should have said something about, hey, Johnny, he's still playing drums, because he did, you know. That's right. That's true. Yeah, he was a good drummer. Um, yeah. Now, your your website talks about the early days in Maxis, Kansas City. Did you ever hang out with uh, David Bowie? No, no. I saw Alice Cooper there one night, but I didn't hang out with him. I was just... Uh, okay. Those guys were around. Okay. I saw Wayne County there a lot. Who's now yeah. Wayne County. Those days, you know, Blondie was around, the Ramones, all those people. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think we've covered just about everything. I uh, I find your career just fascinating, and I love Piper, and I love the stuff that I've heard that you've done. I really like the Study on the Steel solo album as well. Um, looking you, back, so I yeah, absolutely. I wanted to take a you know give an opportunity to sort of honor you on here. 
I always ask people the same basic two questions near the end of these uh, interviews. And I want to know, so I want to know if you have any regrets, if there's any decision that you made along the way that if you hadn't made it, things may have bounced differently or better or, you know, something that kind of eats at you. If there's anything, not everyone has a regret. And then I want to know what your favorite memory is. Maybe it was a show you played. Maybe it was, I don't know, whatever that might be, some party, some interaction, something. But what, what's the answers to those two questions? Okay. The first one is I do not have any regrets. Good for you. The journey was what the journey was. Uh-huh. You know, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't pass anything up that I should have. It's just, you know, just, just, you know, travel down that road, you know, sure, for sure. no regrets. Memories, uh, when it comes to show, there's two shows. One was, uh, one is, uh, Piper opening for Kiss at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Hmm. That show was probably the most electric show ever because Philly fans in those days were wild. Yeah. And, um, the Spectrum, I don't know what it held, you know, it was like, there, Madison Square Garden at the time, you know, it's where the, yeah. the, the hockey and the basketball, the, and um, Philly fans were known to be pretty wild, and I think there was an incident that happened prior to when we were there with Kiss, uh, Aerosmith, someone threw an M80 firecracker up on stage or something, you know, out of love, you know what I mean? Right, right. And uh, so before we went on, Gene and Paul came to our, to Piper, uh, Gene and Paul came to our dressing room, basically to just say, don't be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> don't be afraid. Uh, you know, you know we're going in front of a firing squad. Right. So we walked out on stage. It was so electric. We felt like, it felt like we were the Beatles. I mean, they were fantastic. The crowd, yeah. you know, that show is outstanding. And the other one is with Laura Brannigan, which is, which was recorded. What I'm about to say, uh, mm. at the universal amphitheater in new Orleans. Mm. Uh, that was a Westwood One live radio broadcast, and that was one, probably the only time I've ever felt the building shake. Really? But we did her song "Self Control." Uh huh. I love that, that song. Yeah, and after we finished that song, that place exploded. She turned around and looked at us. Really? Like, what the? You know? Yeah. It was fantastic. So those, wow. those, cool. those two, are two big memories there. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for talking to me, Richie. I think you're great, and uh, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Well, you're really welcome, John. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun. There you have it, Richie Fontana. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I did. I thought he touched on so many different interesting little, you know, um, strands or avenues of pop music that we all really like. He was there. He was a part of it. I thought he had some really fascinating stories to tell, so I thought I'd check him out. Uh, this song right here is another track off of Steady on the Steel. It's called Look at Yourself. I like it a lot. You can uh, buy that album from off of his webpage, by the way. Now, I had originally planned on devoting the entire month of June to British pop or alternative bands that had big hits in the 80s. And that's still going to be tr- the case because I have four interviews in the can. But they're being pushed off one week because next week... Oh, boy. So next week... The guest is going to be somebody who I have mentioned several times on here as being a dream guest of mine. And I was a little nervous because this person is rather esoteric, very uh, has had a very interesting life with a lot of twists and turns that he describes in ways that I don't know that I quite 
follow or understand. And uh, I wanted to interview him anyway. And uh, it, I can't say that I made that it, it all made sense to me. But uh, he's a really interesting character, and uh, we're going to push that one out first. So that's who you're going to hear from next week. I um, maybe you have an idea of who that will be. Maybe you don't. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you. But it, it's a uh, it's an interesting one. I hope you guys can stick with it. After that, we're going to have four straight weeks of great British pop music. Okay. Uh, huge thanks as always to Yan the Man Makevich for putting everything together. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner in this. You guys know how to find us by now. You can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at the Hustle Pod. We will be back next Tuesday. Thanks, everybody. Yeah.